Well, in the 2000s, uh, Lance Armstrong was an absolute legend. Uh, he had beaten an aggressive cancer and climbed to the top of the cycling world, um, winning the Tour de France seven times. Uh, sponsors loved him. They made tons of cash from him. Uh, parents loved him. They used to put their arms around their kids and point to Lance and say, be like Lance. And of course, cancer sufferers loved him. Uh, he established the Lance Armstrong Foundation to inspire other cancer sufferers in the world to live strong. If you remember those yellow bands, like the one he's got on there? I mean, even if you didn't really um, know Lance Armstrong, you kind of knew what those yellow bands were about. He was a big deal. He was an icon. He was a legend. But in 2012, from the top of the world, Armstrong fell and hit the ground really with a dull thud. News broke that he wasn't a champion. He was a cheat. He had used performance-enhancing drugs throughout his career, and as a result, he was stripped of all seven tour titles. The sponsors dropped him. Even the Lance Armstrong Foundation became the Live Strong Foundation because they wanted to distance their good work from his bad name. And amid the public outcry, one question kept on being asked, how could this happen? You're such a legend. How could this happen? And one journalist hit the nail on the head when he said, let's not be deceived, everyone. This is no sudden fall. Armstrong started falling into foolish error long before he fell into disgrace. Now take those words and apply them to King Solomon. As you read 1 Kings 11. With the backdrop of 1 Kings 1 to 10 and the rise to legendary status of this man. And those words have meaning. He had asked God for wisdom and God gave it to Solomon. He'd built the temple of God and God lived in it. He attracted the nations and God was praised by them. We saw that with the Queen of Sheba. And Israel, of course, under Solomon's reign, got as close to this Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic utopia, as they could possibly get. This rise of Solomon, chapters 1 to 10, though, is what makes the fall of chapter 11, the dull thud of chapter 11, such a anti-climax it's like I mean if you were Scottish back then you would say oh Solomon how how could that happen well the answer is that Solomon started falling into sin long before he fell into disgrace we've seen hints of it throughout our studies in the book of 1 Kings so far. And with every foolish choice he made, he compromised his wholehearted devotion to God, the wholehearted devotion that God had called for and that the covenant was founded on. It turns out that he had had a divided heart. And because of that, as we'll see in this chapter tonight, his legacy would be a divided kingdom. Israel would never, ever be the same again. 
So the two points that we're going to uh, hang all of this on tonight are divided heart and the divided kingdom. We'll look at the divided heart first in verses 1 to 13. How did someone end up, someone so wise, end up doing things that were so stupid and becoming so foolish? Well, it really all began with the subtle disregarding of God's word. So at the start of Solomon's reign, in chapter 3, we read that Solomon loved the Lord. But here we find straight away in this chapter that Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Of course, he had married Pharaoh's daughter at the start of chapter 3. We read that before he had asked for this wisdom from the Lord. It was clearly meant to be some kind of political alliance being formed. It was quite common in those days. But actually, as we'll see in this passage, it really wasn't just that. He loved many foreign women. Now, the scriptures are very clear on this matter. Verse 2 of chapter 11 contains this quotation from Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 4, which said in no uncertain terms, don't marry foreign wives. Now, of course, the issue was not ethnicity. The issue is not race, but religion. That's what's going on here. And Deuteronomy 17 is another passage that contains a similar warning. It says this, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, which if you've just left off in chapter 10, you find that's exactly what he's doing. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And he must not take, this is the king he's talking about, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. So Solomon couldn't plead ignorance regarding the, mar- regarding the marrying of foreign wives. He couldn't hold up his hands and say, wow, I just didn't know. Nobody told me that. He knew exactly what he was doing. And in fact, what makes it just that little bit worse is that Proverbs wrote about this kind of thing in Proverbs. And this is a key lesson for us in this, really. It's one thing to know God's word. It's another thing to obey it. And with the grace of the gospel driving us, that's what we're called to do. Walk in his ways. Obey the Lord Jesus' commands. Now, some would argue that here in 1 Kings 11, Solomon loving many wives can be explained away, arguing that, you know, marrying royal princesses was just political peacekeeping with neighboring nations here. But two things really rule that out. First of all, he had a thousand wives, a thousand, seven royal princesses and 300 concubines. That's a lot of wives, isn't it? That's a lot of (laughs) mother-in-laws. But I mean, think about it, like King Solomon, if, even if he went on a date with every separate wife each night, each woman would only get one date every two and a half years. And trust me, that is not going to go down well. They're, they're just, and you know, there really weren't that many nations round about. So let's not pretend. And to clarify things further, if you look at verse 2b, it says that he held fast to them. And the 300 concubines in love. And the author uses the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to describe what makes a man and a woman one flesh. He held fast to them. So we're not really talking about politics and peacekeeping and alliances We're talking about compromising God's words. 
breaking God's law in terms of marriage and sex. He's not pursuing the safety of his people, in other words. He's satisfying his own urges. Now, what we are supposed to see in this is that whatever love threatens to divide our heart between God and it, we can be sure of this, this foolish choices. You know, for Solomon, it was his love of many wives. I don't know what it is for you. The thing that threatens to drag you away from God. We can be sure, though, that the foolish choices that we make away from God and toward these other things ultimately compromise our wholehearted devotion to God. And they begin with this subtle disregarding of God's word. We walk around with our spiritual fingers in our ears, happily exercising selective listening, pretending that we're not hearing what God's word clearly says at a suitable enough volume. So are there any of God's commands that we find it all too easy to disregard? Maybe some immediately rush to your mind. Let me help you with a couple. Colossians 3, for example. Here is a command, an imperative. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Or offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Or love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Subtly disregarding God's clear words in preference for other gods, for other things, for other loves, is dangerous for us. And in fact, what we see in this passage is that the subtle disregarding of God's word leads us to give our hearts to God replacements. You see this in verses 4 to 8. Look with me, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So as time went by, what the author is telling us is that Solomon's wives led him astray. Now, as he grew old, it seems, he seemed to be oblivious to the incongruity of worshipping God and idols. And as time went on, he seemed desensitized to the abhorrence of these idols that he was being led astray towards. And detestable is exactly how these idols are described in verses 5 to 8. I mean, isn't verse 5 shocking? To hear that the man who met with God twice prayed on his knees at the temple dedication followed Ashtoreth and Molech. That is an astonishing thing to read. And the striking thing here, we were just like, oh, Solomon, what have you done? It's when you realize that he does for them, these idols, what he's done for the Lord. He not only follows them, he builds little temples for them around the city. And verse 8 says he offers sacrifices to them. So what he's done for the Lord God of heaven and earth in Jerusalem by building the temple, he's done in miniature. All these little tiny building projects east of the city on the Mount of Olives. A little temple to Chemosh, the demon god who accepts sacrifices that are detestable. 
But he hadn't denied the Lord as such, though. I mean, ask Saul as he comes out of Chemosh's temple. Hey, Saul, do you love the Lord? I think he'd still say yes. Verse 4 says, of course, that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, which seems to suggest that his heart was divided between God and idols. Now, we say, now that is shocking. How can he be so stupid? But then we can just think for a moment of the way that our hearts are torn between the love of God and, say, the love of money. And we realize it's still shocking, but not that uncommon. Because idolatry is no ancient Near Eastern problem. It's our problem as well. What idols do you find capturing your heart? What captures your attention? Where, when you're led astray from God, do you tend to go? Where do you go when you know it's not right? That you move towards the things that he has prohibited. Maybe it is money and materialism. Maybe it's relationships. Uh, Maybe it's power. These are all powerful idols, to name but a few. We, when we follow them, we devote our lives in pursuit of these things. They, in fact, consume us. They change us. They take us away from God. But the Bible says again and again that we are to be those whose hearts are fully devoted to the Lord. Oh, Lord, give me an undivided heart, is the prayer of the psalmist, that I may walk in your ways. Love for the Lord, wholehearted, no compromise. Love for the Lord is what we're called to. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've come to realize this about Christianity yet. That the Christian life is not about what you attend or what kind of ritual you go through. Or, in fact, Christianity is not just about what you believe, but it's about who you love. And God calls us to love him wholeheartedly. Indeed, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Worship him and serve him only. That's what everyone in this world is called to. And if you can't say in your heart that you love him, then please let the person who brought you or one of us here tonight show you, let us show you the extent of his love for you by taking you to passages in God's word which, well, which show us that in, in all its glory. It may surprise you, but we take you to passages that speak about a, a bloody crucifixion 2,000 years ago. That's the demonstration of God's love that we would want to take you to to show you his great love for you. Let someone explain this to you. Ask someone to read these passages with you and see that loving God is what is important. For believers, of course, this is, I think, one of the scary things about this passage and one of the strongest warnings that what we find here with Solomon, really, as you study the passage closely, is that Solomon never explicitly decided to stop loving God, yet the more he loved other things, Really, the less he loved God until one day he found himself sacrificing to a false deity. We must beware that kind of slippage. 
in our lives. This is why gathering together regularly is vital. This is why gathering together in small group discipleship is really, really important, where we can know each other, speak into one another's lives in ways that, well, save each other, rescue each other, look out for each other, as we ought to. That's how we love each other. But the verdict came. The verdict came, Solomon did eyes, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father did. And again, let us just see that foolish choices compromise this full devotion to God. I've been reading a lot of uh, C.S. Lewis recently in Mere Christianity. He says this, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God. And what he encourages us to do is to see that these little decisions concerning the thoughts that we entertain in our minds and the stirring of emotions that we feel in here are dangerous. And if anything threatens to diminish wholehearted devotion to God, deny it. And beware, because long before we would ever fall into disgrace, like Solomon, we sow the seeds of our destruction by making lots and lots of spiritual compromises. And that's dangerous. That's why Solomon serves as a warning for us. But secondly, we see the consequences of what happened to Solomon. The consequences of the foolishness of his choices as we see the tragedy of a divided kingdom. In chapter 11, verses 14 to 43, uh, verses 9 to 43, sorry, we see God, first of all, being quite angry with sin. Look with me, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So his heart is the issue. And it's not simply the sin that made God angry, it's the sinner here. The Lord was angry with Solomon. Now, God's anger, friends, is not some kind of hot-headed, reckless rage. It's not some sinful flaw in God. It is actually his settled, righteous disposition toward evil. And it's perfectly right, and when practiced, all perfectly justified. And God's anger is very unlike ours in the sense that when it's aroused, it's aroused with the intention to destroy the sin or evil committed. And he was angry because Solomon failed, even after God himself had appeared to him twice, giving him some very clear instructions. We remember that from the covenant that was made in chapter 9. And that's an incredible thing to note as well, as an aside, really, his, Solomon's spiritual experiences did not keep him from making, did not keep him from sinning in this way, any more than the gift of his wisdom did. And what are we to make of him in the end as God's anger is poured out upon him? I mean, it's a sorry situation, isn't it? To see this one who rose to such heights in God's kingdom, as we look at verse 11, see God tear that kingdom away from Solomon as a consequence of his sin. 
Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And then in verses 14 through to the end of the chapter, for the first time in 1 Kings, we see some enemies. Remember, God's people had been enjoying peace, relaxing in their hammocks, plucking from their vines, you know, working their grounds. Their plantations were glorious. No one was coming and ransacking their flocks or their crops. They were living in peacetime. But then you have Hadad and Rezon, two guys with a grudge against Israel that dated back to David's wars. Yeah, the Lord raised them up as a means of disciplining Solomon. And then the subordinate in particular that God mentions, well, that's Jeroboam, as we see in verse 26 and following. Now, Jeroboam has this really funny experience when a prophet comes up to him and he has a cloak. And what he does is the prophet cuts the cloak into 12 pieces and he gives Jeroboam 10 pieces. And this, of course, is to illustrate that from this point on, there was going to be a division in the kingdom. The ten northern tribes of Israel would be ruled by one king, Jeroboam. The two southern tribes of Judah and its wee partner, Benjamin, would be ruled from Jerusalem by Rehoboam. But there are signs, even though this is that God's judgment here is, is declared, this tearing of the kingdom from Solomon, there is grace in this. God said to Solomon in verses 12 to 13, this was not going to happen, not yet, not in his lifetime, and in fact, not completely. Because immediately as you start to hear, okay, this son of David is about to have the kingdom torn away from him, immediately you're, you're thinking, well, well, that's it, game over, let's scrunch it up. Because the king that God promised to send from David's line, the one who would build an everlasting kingdom, is not going to be able to come. How is he going to have an everlasting dynasty if Solomon, the one who ruled after him, fell so badly? Well, the good news is this is where we see God at work. And God's at work to turn this tragedy into a comedy. Now, I mean that in the truest literary sense. It's not a funny ha-ha comedy. It's a, you know, a tragedy in, in, in literature is a story of exceptional calamity where a character moves from some kind of prosperity. Everything's going really well for them. And then there's some foolish choices and you're like, oh, Solomon, you know, like Romeo and Juliet is tragedy. But a comedy in literature is basically a story that has a happy ending. Now Solomon's story is a tragedy. Someone who's doing well, he falls and suffers for it. But the story of God, <laughs> as we've seen throughout the scriptures to this point, is a comedy in what is promised. Verse 13 says, Yet I will not tear, this is God speaking, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So even though Solomon had sinned so badly, God was graciously working a plan to keep a little piece of his dynasty, just enough to keep the promise to David 
and to Jerusalem alive. And because that promise was made in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, God remembered that he had promised David this everlasting kingdom. Promised to keep Judah. To preserve that tribe so that in the fullness of time, the one who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, might come. He would come of the line of David, as we saw this morning in Romans 1. As we're looking at in our Matthew series, he's coming into Jerusalem. And the faithfulness of God's promises, despite the sinfulness of God's people, will be maintained until the exceptional king comes. The one who would not sin. The one whose heart would never be compromised by any kind of idol, as Satan himself tempted him. Come on, I'll give you every single one of these kingdoms if you would but worship me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, was Jesus' response. There was no idolatry in his heart. He's the one who walked in perfect obedience, an obedience that was born out of a perfect love for the Father and for those he would come to save. And Jesus died on that cross as the perfect king. The cross, indeed, his perfect throne to demonstrate his love for us and three days later he rose again from the dead God demonstrating his whole Jesus wholehearted devotion to him there was no justifiable reason why this sinless fully committed fully devoted God man should stay dead he had not sinned he had not strayed And our, the call for each and every one of us is to put our faith and trust in him. Because maybe we come to the end of a passage like this and we think, wow, I see lots of idolatry in my heart. We see lots of, I see lots of ways in which my heart is compromised. My encouragement for you, brothers and sisters, is not to be so weighed down by your guilt and shame that you, pra- that you, that you, disobey God by not coming to him in repentance the call for us is to repent and believe the good news the call for us is to confess our sins before God knowing that he forgives us and purifies us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness we have one who was fully committed on our behalf and when we put our faith and trust in him his righteousness is credited to us We live by faith. So trust in him. And as we draw this part of Solomon's, this part of one kings to a close, and close the book, if you like, on Solomon's life, what are we to make of him in the end? Was he saved? Did he ever repent? It's a question I've often been asked at the end of these sermons in one kings. I think this is the most important question for us to ask. I mean, nothing is more important in life than where we will end up in eternity, in heaven or in hell. Well, I think we have good reason to be hopeful about Solomon's salvation. I think one reason would be that God promised David that his son would be disciplined but preserved. He said, God said to him, 
When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And if the book of Ecclesiastes is any indication, the king seemed to recognize his mistakes. And close with these words, here is the conclusion in the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment. May those words encourage us in our wholehearted devotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.